Welcome to The Paleo View. I'm bestselling author and co-creator of realeverything.com, Stacey Toth. I focus on being healthy inside and out through real life, food, and talk. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times bestselling author and creator of thepaleomom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. Hey, listeners, welcome back to the Paleo View. I'm just going to jump right in this week. Hi, Sarah. (laughs) Because this topic I have been ranting about in social media for, by the time this airs, a couple of weeks. And you and I had talked about it, and I texted you, and I was like, I'm fired up. I want to talk about this. And you weren't sure, like you hadn't heard about what it was. And then you looked into it and you were like, oh, yeah, we need to do a show on it. We talked about it last week and you were doing the research. And then we just touched base again and you were like, now I'm fired up about it. Oh, I'm so, I'm so, I have so many things to say. So here's, here's the thing is I want to, I want to give it a, give a little preface and introduction to those listeners that might not know what we're talking about or might come to it from a different perspective. But I will speak on my own about my personal experience. But Sarah, you also have dealt with the struggle with weight and obesity your whole life as it relates to health issues as well. And I think the perspective that both of us have and what I want to focus on is my weight weight loss journey was never about calories in, calories out. There were emotional issues and there were health issues from hormones and different kinds of things, um, as well as the um, emotional disorders that I had that led to the many weight journeys I went on. (laughs) It's not a a linear path because it very much becomes roller coaster, which is why it's described that way when we talk about dieting. And so when we're going to talk about weight loss for children today, um, and I think the message that I want to share is that the foundation that we set for our kids at a young age is what is the foundation for their lifetime. And my concern is that when we introduce something like a weight loss program for kids, not only are we dealing with all of the science that Sarah's going to cover on why this can be detrimental to their health, but from my perspective, that was the start of an emotional relationship with food that went the opposite of a good direction. Um, mm-hmm. And I did end up getting therapy for example, bulimia and binge eating disorder and that kind of stuff as a teenager because I went on diets so much um, on and off. I mean, I remember my grandmother talking to me like, oh, I was always on a diet with your dad. Um, You know, like my parents went through this, my grandparents went through this, and it was just a part of our family. And I, I don't think we really knew better back then. I think that people wanted 
health for their loved ones. And now there's a much better understanding of health at any size. And there's more to health than just your weight. I mean, I've talked about it before, but you can be an average or underweight person and still have a lot of health issues. And I think that's something that isn't addressed enough in popular culture about those people also feeling like they're not getting the support that they need because it's always about weight loss or they go to see a doctor and it's like, well, you're a healthy weight. Everything must be fine. Um, And so there's this just insane amount of diet culture pervasiveness everywhere from doctors and pop culture and, you know, our genetic influences and parents and all this kind of stuff. And so to add to that, just like blew my mind because we do know better now. Like we know that asking children to diet creates this yo-yo roller coaster for them. And it strips away the confidence or the perceived support and encouragement that they might have from focusing on positive healthy activities versus counting calories or identifying guilt and shame associated with food by calling them good or bad, which we've talked about on the show before as well. So my my perspective on this is, is one of, I've been through this, my you know, whole family on both sides has a history of this. And when this weight loss program for kids came out, (laughs) so to speak, um, and there were like before and after pictures and identification of good and bad foods, like I just, I got so angry. Like Mm -hmm. I just, I wanted to hug every single one of those children and tell them, that they're wonderful just as they are, like, and and they're loved and they're supported. And I feel like those are the things that I, I don't want to say I didn't get because I know that my mom is listening and I love you, mom, and I know you did your best. But like, we, that's what we need is emotional support for these kids and teaching them good habits and focusing on and praising the things that are really great in their life and doing it with them. That's another thing that I think is like such like blows my mind that I, I notice it, you know, when I get off, off track, you know, when I'm busy and, you know, we're ordering out and whatever, I'm like, Oh my God, this is what I'm teaching my children right now. Like Mm -hmm. we need to, as a family, come back to the real foods dinner table. We need to go on walks together. We need to go to the Y together. We need to, Go hiking, be active, be in sunlight, all the things that we talk about in this show. The more we do that and we exemplify that and are an example for our children, the more they will do it themselves as well. Um, And those healthy habits are the things that I think would have made the most difference for me as a young age versus, and I know my rant is just keeping going on and on, but um, versus, for example, I went to a camp for overweight children. Um, I'm going to call it fat camp. And I'm going to tell you that the name of the camp that all the children referred to it as was camp shame. Um, And that's because of how we all felt going there. And I learned terrible habits like camp camp counselors would sell um, sweets on the black market, like $20 for a candy bar. 
And then I saw other people throwing up that candy bar so that weigh in, they would lose weight and, you know, different kinds of things like that. And I think that's the extreme of bad. But then there was also the feeling that I had when I left camp that actually made me feel even more shame is I would leave camp and I would be thin and I, and I would be so praised and rewarded and just like everybody would talk about how amazing I looked. And um, there was this focus on appearance and thinness. And it was also like a connection with other human beings that made me realize how much weight discrimination there was. Like mm-hmm. men open doors for me at a lower weight. People make eye contact with me more at a lower weight. And there's all this like pervasiveness in our culture that I don't think most people realize until you are that heavy that you can understand the negativity associated with it. And so for me, I didn't recognize those things as being something that was happening to me until my situation changed. And then it made me feel shame about my previous weight or my previous life or whatever. And then of course, because I'm no longer exercising eight hours a day, eating 14 calories or whatever it was, um, I put the weight back on and even more, as we've talked about on the show, Mm -hmm. what happens to hormones and all that kind of stuff. And now at a lower muscle mass index. Um, And so I had even more negativity and, and health issues associated with it. So my experience is very extreme to one end. I understand that not everybody who just wants their kids to be healthy and from that perspective lose 10 pounds feels that way. But I want you to understand like that's that's how it starts. Like, And it can get that bad for a lot of people. And it's been a very long journey for me and why I'm so passionate <laughs> and why I'm talking and talking and talking. Um, yeah, I, uh, I'm getting emotional. And it's because of I mean, you, I think, just really succinctly uh, explained the experience of being obese. And um, especially, I think there's um, something that happens, uh, right? Kids kids are more emotionally vulnerable, right? It's why we have anti-bullying programs in schools. It's because being bullied is awful and it scars you for life. And I'm, you know, also speaking as somebody who was uh, pretty mercilessly bullied in elementary school and middle school. And, um, and I think that, uh, teaching our kids, um, like I was taught, right? Like I was taught that I was doing something wrong, that it was my fault. And this came from, um, the entire culture around weight. Um, and I was a robust kid, but I wasn't overweight until, um, sort of my, you know, early teens. And that was when I started to put on weight. It became a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I thought that I was fat long before I was actually overweight. And it was this, um, external influence of, um, you know, I had a grandmother who was always on a diet. Um, my, um, but diet culture had seeped into our family. Um, I had, um, bullies at school who would, uh, tease me for being overweight. Um, but there was also even, right. Even the PE curriculum when I was a kid was about, 
burning calories. Like it, it, um, it was so pervasive and I developed binge eating disorder and was morbidly obese. Um, in part because I had an underlying health issue that was driving my weight gain that went undiagnosed for something like 30 years. Um, and so it felt to me like it didn't matter what I did. Um, nothing worked, but also the things that I was doing were the popular diets of the time, right? So the things that everyone was, was taught would help you lose weight in the eighties uh, and nineties were the, were the things that I was doing. And, you know, we know now that that's, it, it's so problematic. And as I dig into the science and sort of meld the data with my experience, Stacey, I think your experience is like mine on steroids. I think that, um, I think that it's it's not just it's not just that this um, this you know the new weightless weight loss program for kids that's been hitting the media that we are tangentially referring to um, it's not just that that is absolutely everything wrong that any um, child psychiatrist or pediatrician could tell you is the absolute wrong way to go about supporting healthy habits in kids and and supporting you know trying to uh, address childhood obesity rates and things like that. Like this is the complete wrong way to go about it. But I think it goes so much beyond that because we have this culture now, as I was researching for this episode, I hit the statistic that just, um, it hurts to read. And it was that, um, 91% of American women have dissatisfaction with their bodies. 91%. Like it, this is what we're doing to ourselves and then we're teaching it to our kids. We're teaching our kids that, um, there's something wrong with them, that they have to, um, you know, whatever it is, diet, exercise, that, that they have to fix themselves, that they're, they're physically broken. And this is what we're telling ourselves, 91% of us. And it, it, it's, it goes beyond, um, and we'll, we'll dig into this data about why, um, diet mentality is so destructive for kids and teens and why uh, diets themselves can be uh, physiologically harmful. Like it's it's not just the psychological effects. There are physiological effects that we need to get into as well. Um, but it, it goes beyond that because I think that this is a symptom of a cultural phenomenon that is corrosive, that we we put these underweight uh, body types on this pedestal as being the height of beauty when what's healthy is actually quite a lot hev heavier than that. And we shame everybody else. And so we're actually like, shaming people if they're not underweight, which is ridiculous. And, and we do it to ourselves, right? So this is, this is something that is absolutely, um, pervasive in our entire society and our entire culture. And I think that this it this is like the the eye opening to me like this is the the thing that for me was the slap across the face to really um to really look inward at how i treat myself i think outwardly i make a i'm a really good role model for my kids when it comes to health but maybe inwardly i'm not and i i really took as i was researching and and, and pulling together this data i really took this personally, because I feel like it's something that, um, especially, especially as someone who has 
uh, an audience to educate, I think that it's something I really want to communicate is that um, the, the entire fixation of our community on weight instead of health is wrong. And I want every one of our listeners to, you know, really, you know, look at, look at, at your, not just your actions, but your self-talk, um, and really think about it as objectively as you can without, right. And this isn't about blame and this isn't about regretting things, but how can we together as a community move forward to address every aspect of this, not just the healthy habits we're teaching our kids, which we're going to get into, but how we, how we talk to ourselves internally that is potentially being even intuitively observed by our children. What are we teaching our children about how to navigate healthy choices in life um, based on how we talk to ourselves? I love, love, love (laughs) what you just said. Um, I think one of the biggest things for me is talking, the next time you talk to yourself, think about if you were saying that to your child or to your mother or to your best friend. Like, would you talk to them the same way that you talk to yourself? And I think the alternative to that is we tell ourselves, but I want to make improvements about myself. Well, that's okay. Like you can both accept yourself and love yourself and respect yourself as you are today and want to make healthier habits and changes. But the guilt and the shame associated with that negative self-talk and mindset is so pervasive that it causes self-destructive habits when you don't achieve perfection, which Mm -hmm. none of us will ever do. And then it's like, begets this negative cycle of, oh, I didn't do the thing. And so now I'm even a worse person. Because of what? Like, because of a an appearance, right? And so I've challenged myself over the last mm, probably year um, to really no longer acknowledge people's like bodies. Um, and if I'm going to comment on appearance, it's on things like, you look so happy, you look mm-hmm. so healthy, right? Like words that do not associate with um, emptiness. Like I just, I, I've, And it's something I've really had to work on and I've had to think about a lot because that wasn't a habit for me. Like that, that wasn't natural thought process. So, I mean, I will fully admit that I contributed to this diet culture, so to speak, with before and after photos on my blog and all this kind of stuff from losing so much weight with paleo. And I can only say I know better now and I'm going to do better. Right. And so it's not about like what you did before or what you thought or what you said to someone or, you know, like don't get caught up in even more negativity and and guilt and shame. Like, oh, what have I done to my kid? I've said this or done this so far. Like as we jump into the rest of the show, what I want to encourage you to do is just think positively about the changes that you can make in the future and feel good about that because that kind of thought process is what will help you achieve the goal that you're trying to do. If you get caught up in that reflecting back and thinking negatively, you're only sucking yourself back into this black hole that you're trying to avoid. 
So let's go through some data to um, reinforce the importance of uh, taking some time and and revisiting right these these periods of self reflection when it comes to how each one of us are sort of contributing to diet culture. Um, it's been known in the in the medical literature for about twenty years that um, going on a diet as an adolescent dramatically increases the risk of developing an eating disorder. And this was sort of all launched by this very well done study from 1999, um, where they, uh, looked at 2000 teenagers and did a whole pile of different analyses. They looked at, um, lifestyle factors. They did, uh, surveys to look at mental health. They looked at, um, you know, things like their starting weight, how active they were, uh, gender. And what they discovered was the single biggest predictor of an eating disorder. And this, this, um, did only looked at anorexia and bulimia. So it didn't look at uh, binge eating disorder or obesity as eating disorders in, within their criteria. And they basically showed, um, they also had a very complex criteria for determining whether a diet was a moderate diet or a severe diet. But you can basically think about a moderate diet as uh, being, you know, along the lines of, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to watch what I eat and I'm going to not let myself have that dessert. Whereas a severe diet would be the more obsessive, counting every calorie and, um, it, it's not necessarily higher levels of caloric restriction, uh, but a higher level of, um, uh, sort of obsession with food choice. Um, but it may also translate to, it's very likely that that cohort also had, um, a higher degree of caloric restriction than the moderate. So, uh, they discovered that in the kids who, uh, were, on what they sort of called a severe diet, they were 18 times more likely to develop an eating disorder. Those that were on a moderate diet, which I think, um, you know, a moderate diet, I think very much, it, for, for me, I think of what I did as a teenager, probably cycled between moderate and severe and <laughs> not trying at all. Um, but probably a lot of it fell under that moderate category. Um, a moderate diet increased the risks of developing an eating disorder by five, five fold, five times higher. And things that didn't affect the chances of developing an eating disorder, how active the kids were, how, um, what their body mass index was at the start. So, um, it wasn't that, um, you know, the more overweight they were, they were, were the higher risk. I mean, those are things that were sort of postulated to be true up until this study. There's been a variety of follow-up studies that have confirmed these results that have added binge eating disorder and obesity. And I think the, the like follow-up information that's, that's really scary. There was a, a 2016, um, study published in the American Academy of Pediatrics that, uh, it was like a review paper, and we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. So you can sort of see all of the different data they're pulling together, showing that um, dieting, which is purely defined as some level of caloric restriction with the goal of weight loss, was not only a risk factor for developing eating disorders, but it also doubled the risk of obesity. 
And there's a variety of things going into this, right? So, um, and, and I will talk a little bit about the epigenetic damage of caloric restriction. Um, you know, often the types of diets that these um, kids and teenagers are going on are not, you know, it's not a nutrient dense, you know, calorically um, restricted diet, right? It you mean is... the pretzels and water I was encouraged to eat was not? <gasps> <laughs> Um, no, I mean, so this is the problem, right? So it's not just, it's not just caloric restriction, but it is nutrient restriction because even on some of the more, um, let's say forward thinking diet plans that, in, you know, that have like unlimited vegetables, right? Like though, even those plans are not actually teaching people how to eat enough nutrients, right? Like that is not part of this. And so um, I think that we're seeing the psychological damage is almost certainly from that cycle of um, body shame, um, the, the, the stigma that is associated with it. Um, there's the, the, um, you know, the anxiety and the stress and the depression and that the problem is, um, and I've, I have a, I should probably mention like I, at, uh, my workshop, I've started talking a lot about healthy weight loss in a lot of my educational resources. And I have an online course that is very much about healthy goal setting and addressing habits in order to normalize weight, uh, in a healthy way that sort of ditches all of this mentality, that it's not about, um, losing 10 pounds for a wedding or for, you know, these kids, these like ridiculous things that, that are being promoted. And one of the things that I go through in that course is on these sort of traditional diets. One of the, one of the reasons why weight loss maintenance is so challenging is that, um, the especially the the higher the caloric restriction, and we see this with carb restriction, we see this with fat restriction, your hunger hormones increase. So your hunger increases and your metabolism decreases. Um, there's um, most of these diets are not rich enough in protein to maintain lean muscle mass. Um, and it's not just right, it's not just about diet maintaining lean muscle mass during weight loss also requires um, resistance training and, uh, a very moderate approach, right? Like a slow and steady wins the race type approach to weight loss. And so basal metabolic rate tanks, that's a, uh, lean muscle mass factor combined with what's happening to thyroid hormones during weight loss at the same time as hunger increases. And it's basically this recipe for weight gain, um, unless you approach this in the exact right way, which is much more healthy habit, right? Eat more vegetables, um, you know, get enough sleep, live an active lifestyle, manage stress like those and make sure you're getting enough protein, right? Those are like the main things that lead to weight loss, uh, uh, maintenance, right? So being able to normalize weight and keep it off. And, and cause it's very much about healthy choices and not about necessarily a particular goal. And so, um, what's happening in, these kids is the, the diets that they're going on are setting themselves up to fail. They're setting themselves up to yo-yo because, um, it's very goal driven. Uh, the faster the weight loss, the better. Um, it's not a nutrient rich, 
um, approach. There are a variety of nutrients that are critical for fat metabolism um, that are that are really important to make sure you're getting enough of. Losing weight is inflammatory. Losing weight increases oxidative stress, right? So you need to balance that with antioxidants and sleep. Like it is a, a um, it is a thing that requires an education. And one of the biggest challenges with all of these different, you know, weight loss centers, right? These, um, or programs where you, you go and you weigh in on the weekends with your group and all of these different things. I mean, they're, they're maybe not designed to do this, but the end result is that they, set you up to yo-yo because there's this assumption that if you don't lose weight fast enough, you won't stick to it. Well, if it's not making you healthier, then it's, it's very hard to stick to. And it magnifies shame. Like it's, I don't think it's intended, but it does. Right. So you end up in this, um, psychological cycle in addition to the physiological cycle. So the physiological cycle, uh, and we talked about this on our, uh, yo-yo diet, show a couple months ago, the physiological cycle is, um, changing body composition in a way that is increasing risk of health problems with every cycle. But the psychological cycle is a cycle of shame and failure and then, um, reward, right? And it's, it's that magnifies the shame when you can't stick to this thing that you physiologically set yourself up to not be able to, to follow. And so I'm, I feel, I mean, it's, this also brings back my whole, uh, very strong passion these days about, um, not distilling diet or lifestyle choices to, uh, yeses and nos, the, the things to do and the things not to do, the things to eat and the things not to eat and not to put the stigma on no foods and not to, um, not to extend express things so simplistically that you can't understand the whys behind a choice. Like I really think that we need to provide this broader education. And this is another, um, another statistic that really reinforces a, that conventional weight loss approaches are fatally flawed uh, and B that, um, without the education behind it and the more informed approach, not only are we setting up ourselves and our kids to fail at weight loss goals, but now we're increasing the risk of them developing a mental health disorder because of that approach. And the thing that gets me is specifically kids don't understand any of that, right? Like, so I think a lot of us are thinking this in the context of ourselves, you know, this yo-yo show that we did, we talked about it as adults, but Kids do not understand things like muscle weighing more than fat or how hormone and metabolisms play into things. And so, like, as you were talking about all that stuff, I was having all these flashbacks of my youth, like being publicly weighed and knowing that I'd done everything right because I actually went to this summer camp twice. Um, I ended up getting bronchial infections and walking pneumonia from what I can now look back on as like a health crash. Mm -hmm. Um, but so when I went back again, like I knew I was doing everything right. And yet I wasn't losing weight, but my clothes were getting smaller and other people were losing weight. And I remember being talked to by the nutritionist and saying, you know what, maybe you need to not eat the full portion that's being served to you because you're not losing weight instead of like 
looking at me and saying, oh, you're the kind of person that puts on muscle mass. Like, this is great. You're doing the exercise stuff and you're losing body fat or whatever it was, right? And I'm not saying that that's even the thing to focus on with kids, but like, I didn't understand any of that and no one mentioned it to me either. So I think when we introduce these ideas to kids, I'm I think a lot of kids see it more simplistically, like, for example, this morning on the radio, dropping Finn off to school, the person on the radio said, I'm, I kid you not, you're going to, Sarah, going to die when I say this, I'm one stomach flu away from my goal weight. And I just like immediately turned off the radio and looked at him and I was like, do you understand like how messed up that was that she said that. And he's like, why would she want the stomach flu? And I'm like, I know, right? Like, how is that health? How is saying, I want the stomach flu to, to I mean, and she wasn't necessarily saying I want the stomach flu, but just Which she was even referencing it that at all. And, that, and that's where when you talk about nutrient deficiencies and all of these kinds of things that lead to all these other hormone problems, and how it's inflammatory and whatever. And I'm like, and yet this person wants to add on or is referencing in a way that is simple enough for a child to understand. And as a young girl, if I would have heard someone say that, I would have been like, yeah, I can do that. And I did take laxatives and all that kind of stuff as a kid because I was trying to be thinner. Like I did all of those bad things, right? And so it's like, these are the things that our kids will learn if we don't help them develop the healthy habits that do lead to um, healthy hormones and different things that matter much more than their weight. And so I would love for you to talk a little bit about why health at any size, quote unquote, or I think you call it metric of health versus weight. Like, I know you're going to get into some of that kind of stuff, but I just think like the more we can learn that lingo and learn the science and the information behind it. Like you said, learn the why and learn the how so that we can help our children understand it. The more we can hear those kinds of ridiculous things in the radio and turn it off instead of, I think it probably goes in one ear and out the other for most people and they don't even hear it as, oh my gosh, that was terrible. Like why, why, why would you even say that? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, this has been one of the the main drivers of my health journey, right? So um, it was losing over 100 pounds and having every symptom of every other health condition I have continue to get worse the more weight I lost. That was my big, like, epiphany moment that brought me to the paleo community, that brought me to the autoimmune protocol, and that brought me to this more, like, lifestyle focus. I, you know, I... I realized that when people ask me how I eat, I very rarely use the word paleo to define um, how I eat because I'm I'm I just don't I don't necessarily like to label it. It's just how I eat, and it's very nutrient. It's a nutrient density focus. If I had to say honestly, if I had to label my diet, I resonate a lot more with the term nutrivore than I do with paleo these days. Um, and it's because the primary criteria for me about for foods is nutrients. And so one of the things that we we see is that nutrient deficiencies are one of the strongest links to chronic disease risk, but they also increase risk factors 
So for example, there are a variety of nutrient deficiencies that are linked with obesity and obesity itself increases risk of cancer and type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease and autoimmune disease, et cetera. And so nutrient deficiencies are huge, right? Um, a sedentary lifestyle is a huge risk factor. Uh, inadequate sleep is a huge risk factor. And so it turns out that when you eat a nutrient-dense diet, which is all of the things we always talk about on the show, right? Lots and lots of vegetables, fruit, nuts and seeds, um, fresh herbs and spices, uh, seafood, snout to tail, uh, high-quality meat, right? That that sort of dietary template that is nutrient-focused is, um, is something that supports the reduced risk of disease. And I think that when we think about health, disease risk is really the thing that matters, right? It's it's not about do I fit into those jeans or am I going to look good on a, in a bikini, right? It, those are uh, visual cues that we've trained ourselves to not recognize the visual cues of health, right? Like the visual cues of health are things like um, thick, shiny hair and glowing skin and a giant smile and energy and muscle, but not cut, right? Like those are, those are the things that are physical signs of, of health for women. There's actually, uh, some hormonal advantage to having a little bit more weight. Like we're, we're supposed to have, um, probably more like 25 ish percent body fat. Um, and that is because that helps to regulate our hormones. And we're like, trying to, you know, so many of us are, are, this was the thing for me that was also a, a, a stark realization over the last couple of years was if you'd asked me, I would have said, oh, you know, yep, I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing great, but I, I still would like to lose X more pounds. But if you look at body composition, I am exactly in the healthiest range and I, that's where I need to be. And I need to, be the person on stage that is as demonstrating that at conferences and walking around and saying like, look, no, this is what is healthy. And so what I consider metrics of health, body composition before weight on a scale is very, very important. Um, and it's actually probably far more important how much muscle we have than how much fat. And so that's one of the reasons why, you know, really interestingly, this, this paper that looked at, um, uh, diet and, um, risk for, for eating disorders showed that exercise did not increase risk of eating disorders. And so just being active and I would not, it's not a calorie in, cause if you do calorie in calorie out, that's a diet, but just being active is a super healthy lifestyle choice. It's going to improve our health in a variety of different ways, right? It increases insulin sensitivity. It supports sleep. It supports hormone regulation. It reduces stress. Um, it increases muscle mass, which increases basal metabolic rate. Like there's all of these great benefits to being active. And if we can separate activity away from weight loss goals and diet mentality, it is a super, super healthy thing to do. And so metrics of health, right? Um, it, you know, body composition is certainly one of them, but we can look at things like inflammatory markers in the blood. That's a really important metric of health. If you're inflamed, uh, yeah, you might be fighting off the flu, but maybe there's something else going on. Uh, we can look at things like, um, uh, you know, lipid panels. Um, we need to 
take a lot of those with grains of salt. Like how high is your HDL is probably more important than how low is your LDL. Um, and certainly triglycerides is the, is the probably the most important out of all of those markers. Um, mood is a, a really great metric of health. Uh, do you feel happy when you are stressed? Do you crazy overreact to a traffic jam? Um, Cravings is an excellent metric of health because somebody who is looking after themselves physically um, and emotionally doesn't have the same kind of crippling food cravings as somebody who isn't. Um, Energy levels. So energy levels dipping in the afternoon is not normal. That means something is, and it's often, right, it's often related to stress um, or sometimes inadequate sleep. Do you wake up feeling refreshed, energetic, and ready for the day? So those are far more important things to be looking at for ourselves and for our kids. Are kids getting enough sleep? Are they active? Do they have energy throughout the day? Are they, you know, falling asleep in the afternoon? Um, granted, given, right, a nap for teenagers is totally normal because their sleep requirements are higher than school schedules typically allow. Um, but are, are they happy? Do, do they laugh? Do you laugh? I mean, those things are far more important to look at than, than the weight on a scale. And it's really important, Stacey, you mentioned that um, people can be uh, normal weight, uh, and I'm using air quotes, air quotes around normal, average weight or uh, underweight and have all kinds of health issues. And there, are, you can be overweight and be extremely healthy. And it's because the amount of stored energy in our body, right, which is the fat that we're all trying to lose, is A, we're supposed to have some stored energy. And B, it's only one factor out of many and probably not even the most important factor. So we get so wrapped up in weight loss goals when the things that'll make us healthy, they, sure, it might translate to weight loss too, but, uh, and that this is what I call getting healthy to lose weight rather than losing weight to get healthy. But the, the more important thing is that we can be healthy, not get horrible chronic illnesses or even acute infections because we have a great robust immune system and we can be productive members of society and we can live a long time. Like those are all the things that actually matter. Are you, are you happy and are you avoiding health crises? Um, the, the thing that doesn't matter is whether or not you're wearing size eight jeans or size 18 jeans. Like it, it just, okay, I'm, I'm going to take a breath. I think the thing for me is that I never saw anybody who looked like me in my early life either. So it was hard for me to say that there was anyone that was healthy at any size. Like there, and I think, you know, growing up a while ago, I mean, I don't just Just like six years ago. <laughs> I'm, I'm almost 40. Um, actually, my 38th birthday is next week. Um, happy early birthday. Thank you. So I think for me growing up in that time period, specifically, there were no redheads. First of all, nowadays there's like redheads everywhere. (laughs) Um, I don't know if we've talked about this before. I'm sure redheads existed back then. Pippi Longstockings and Annie were the only two redheads that existed in pop culture and Winona Judd. Pippi Longstocking. 
Winona Judd, people compared me to as a teenager all the time. And that was not something that I felt good about. I mean, she was so much older than me and she was so much heavier than I was at the time. And it was like when people would be like, oh, you know, when they'd be like, who's your celebrity, whoever, it was always Winona Judd. And because there was nobody else. And so it didn't make me feel good to see nobody who looked like me in popular culture. And that only enforced this idea that if you wanted to be ideal, then you needed to be thin. And there was, it was just understood that that meant health, right? Like there, there was, there were no other like factors of health. No one ever thought about my thyroid. No one ever thought about um, checking hormone for inflammation. It wasn't until I stopped eating gluten and I had no negative white blood cell count, not just inflammation markers. My white blood cell count was inflamed like I had cancer are the words that my primary doctor used. And it went away when I had gluten. And I'm like, why didn't you tell me it was there to begin with? And he's like, oh, I just thought maybe you had an infection when you came in every year for a physical. Um, you know, and so it's that's, I know, but it's that kind of stuff that now there's more education about you, mm-hmm. a listener listening to the show right now, have so much more information than we did in that time period because there was no internet. I mean, AOL keyword search was just coming up. Um, and so it was hard to know these things and to find them because there was no podcast, there was no blogs, there was no any of this stuff, right? Like you were just trusting a doctor or being referred to a nutritionist who didn't talk about markers of inflammation and and all that kind of stuff. So for me, I, I have such hope that the next generation will have this information, will have the education and will go back to the way that their grandparents lived, not just eating real whole nutrient dense, low inflammatory foods, but also like less plastic and all of the other things that we talk about that go into health as well. And um, it's not a coincidence to me that we're in this kind of like bell curve right now. And I'm really hoping that we're on the downswing and that our children can benefit from us being educated and sharing that and doing it with them leading by example, doing the things that we talk about so that they learn how to incorporate it into their lives as well. Because if not, we have real trouble. If where we're going is putting children on weight loss programs and not talking about the things that really matter and helping them understand the emotional and physical impacts of nutrient and caloric restriction, then we're, we're doomed. I mean, I really don't know what else to say. I mean, that's like super negative, but we, we have to be the change agents. And I think the science bears that out. So, um, one of the things that I find really fascinating is what it is doing to our epigenetics to go on these weight loss programs. And there's, you know, data now from the last sort of 10, 15 years showing that what's called undernutrition. So this is basically um, insufficient calories. It's often goes along with insufficient nutrients and it can be from 
right? Times of famine. So some of the most interesting studies are from famines, but also from, um, you know, weight loss diets. It can also be from illness, right? So there's, there's other things that can, can lead to undernutrition. Um, but it is linked to, uh, a dramatic, um, list of negative health consequences that actually transcends uh, generations. So um, one of the, the, the most interesting studies is um, the Dutch health study that looked at uh, times of famine and how those um, how those impacted the health of the people, depending on how old they were when they went through that famine, but also the health of their children. And now they're looking at the grandchildren, right? So the famine was in the mid forties, um, that they're specifically studying towards the end of this, the second world war. And it was about six months of, um, famine in these, um, uh, Dutch towns. And, um, and what we know is that kids who were, um, you know, the, the same age that these weight loss diets are targeting, right? So that eight to, to 17 were a particularly sensitive group. I mean, so, you know, pregnant women and infants were also very sensitive groups in the, in these studies. But, um, you know, one statistic that, that I think is really relevant here is women who were between the age of 10 and 17 at the start of this famine, um, have, you know, had later in their life, a 38% increased risk of coronary heart disease. Like it, it does damage our bodies to have severe caloric restriction. It increases risk of some cancers of type two diabetes, of obesity, of, uh, immunosuppression. That's probably why you were getting infections when you went to your camp shame. Um, it increases risk of mental health disorders, of schizophrenia, of, uh, of Alzheimer's and dementia. I don't know if I mentioned type two diabetes, but I'm going to mention it again because I think that's worth emphasizing of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, and, 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 you know, interestingly, the children of these women are shorter. Like there's, there's a, a, um, a height, um, effect, um, and there's also, you know, the study is now showing that the increased risk of diseases through basically turning on these adaptation genes, right? So your body's trying to survive a time of famine. So that's turning on some genes and turning off other genes that that actually is inherited. So this is one of the things that's most, to me, it's a super fascinating advance in our understanding of genetics. And that is epigenetics, which is basically studying which genes are turned on or off, but it's heritable, which means that we pass on not just the DNA code for that gene, but also the, whether or not that gene is going to be turned on or turned off into our offspring. And so there's, I don't think that it is hyperbolic to say that we need to fix this for our children's generation because we can actually point to genetic changes as a result of dieting that can be then passed on to their children that is going to increase risk of chronic disease, which would be the opposite of health. As you were talking about that, I was starting to like do the glaze over guilt thing and thinking about all the things that I'd done in my life and what nope. have I done to my children? And then I was like, Don't do that. Nope. 
not nope. doing it. <laughs> not getting pulled into that cycle. I'm going to think about all the things that I am doing now to benefit them so that they can have a better future. Like okay, let's let's switch gears and talk about those positive things that we yes. can do um to to not just uh not just address our how we talk to ourselves but really help our kids develop those healthy habits that will support a healthy weight whatever that is for them um and lifelong health. Well, the first one that I want to mention I think I've said it a couple of times, but like you with diabetes, I'm going to be like, I'm going to mention it again. <laughs> we have to live and lead by example. If we are not doing the things, then our children won't do the things. There's so much research and science to support that children model parental behaviors from smoking to eating healthy. Like this is the model that they learn from. Even if you think the children aren't watching or listening, they are. And it's not just about, Sarah, like you said, doing it in front of them and modeling it for them. It's also about living it for yourself because they pick up on that. They are not idiots. So, um, and they understand us better than anyone. They, they come from our DNA. So we have to not just model it for them, but we have to actually believe it. And for me, I know I personally tell my children, like, you know what, we've just kind of been laying around Netflixing all weekend. Let's get up and go do something. What do you guys want to do? You know, and and then it becomes like a a fun activity. What do you want to do? Let's go do it. And I'm also acknowledging like I don't want to be bump on a log so that they understand like okay, let's go be active. But it's not about like you know what? We have just been slovenly and gross and, you know, bad people all weekend. We need to go exercise, like, because that mentality becomes punishment mindset. And so it's, it's about building that fun as much as you can into those healthy habits. And it's also about, for example, bringing your kitchen in, bringing your kids into the kitchen with you to cook the healthy meal so that they learn how to do it. Don't be like my husband and say, I don't know how to boil water <laughs> at 22. <laughs> you know, like the more they learn how to cook the real food, the more likely they are when they're on their own to be able to replicate it instead of just buying processed, packaged, pre-made, whatever. There's also a lot of research supporting the idea of family meals um, that uh, everyone seems to like the whole family will make healthier choices as part of those family meals. But it also has a um, like family bonding that actually translates to other healthy habits, which is really cool. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I I will say my parents, both of them, because my parents are divorced, both of my parents did an awesome job of always having a family meal. And I think also it gives you an opportunity to talk and connect on a, a way like we talk about food as being social, um, you know, like you have an enjoyment out of the experience, a, a social connection versus like becoming absorbed into your own thoughts or your food. And I think that's where a lot of times like mindless overeating and that kind of stuff can happen as well. So um, being engaged and, and feeling like food as a positive experience, not as like a, oh, I'm going to fill my emotional needs with it, but that it's just a positive thing in your life um, 
doesn't create all the negative associations with dieting and all that kind of stuff that we talked about. It's just my personal opinion and experience. Agreed. Agree a hundred percent. Um, in terms of, I was going to ask you, um, what about like what's on the table? So we've Mm -hmm. talked a lot about, um, caloric restriction and we didn't specify it, but the program that we're talking about, there's like red, yellow, green lights on foods that we wouldn't necessarily give the same coding to, for example, like a, um, a fattier cut of meat. Um, so I'm wondering what the science says about the healthier habits for, um, what food is on the table, for example. I mean, we yeah. know nutrient dense paleo is what um, to put on there, but obviously. <laughs> um, but interestingly, you know, the science is pretty strong on the number one diet factor that um, predicts it. So it predicts um, being a healthier weight, but also it predicts weight loss success as well as weight loss maintenance success is higher vegetable consumption. Like that's the number one thing. I know we're like all super surprised, um, but that's the number one I just one fell thing. out of my chair. I know. I, I heard it. Um, <laughs> but it, you know, it's, it's the number one thing that, that scientific studies have shown, right? The more vegetables you eat, um, the, and part of that is they fill you up for lower calories. They're full of, uh, they are what supports a healthy gut microbiome and our gut bacteria. There's now some new science showing that it not, they control our metabolism, but they also produce neuroactive compounds that are potentially impacting our behavior, which is like mind blowing. So, uh, that's one of the reasons why there's such a strong link between our gut bacteria and, um, our weight. So eating more vegetables is probably Im- impacting, uh, weight normalization through the gut microbiome as well. But it's uh, also, you know, people who, who eat more vegetables tend to also ha- make other healthier choices outside of that. So there's also really interesting research showing, for example, that if you get enough sleep, you're more likely to choose fresh fruits and vegetables over fast food. So they kind of, all of these things kind of integrate. And if I had to sort of distill, I know that, um, my, uh, nine-year-old Mira came home with, uh, that had their like healthy habits thing at school and there were four healthy habits. And I was like, Oh, what are they? And, uh, it was like, uh, exercise, no screen time, drink lots of water and like eat more vegetables. And I was like, okay, well, I, I, I can wrap my head around that sort of, um, but can we put sleep on that list? Because, um, I, you know, there's very, very strong correlations between sleep and weight and it's much higher in kids. So, um, you know, it increases risk of, of being overweight, um, you know, about 10 times more in kids than it does in adults. And in adults, it's still like a, you know, two and a half fold increase in risk. So it's, it's a really, really huge factor. And I think that, um, sleep has sort of fallen off the societal priority list these days. Um, so teaching our kids about the importance of sleep, I think is really important. And I think that translates into a lot of other things, right? It translates into higher motivation to be active and, um, lower cravings and, a a more, um, sort of natural attraction to healthier foods. So 
I, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to wrap my head around these four healthy habits, eating more fresh fruits and vegetables. I'm all, I'm all about, uh, can I just say playing outside? Um, cause that's gonna, that's gonna tackle the activity stuff, but it's also going to tackle things like circadian rhythm and nature time and benefits of sun exposure, vitamin D. It's going to kind of get all of those things. Can I say get enough sleep? And then I guess hydration is also important like important. And, and that the point of that is to get away from is to replace sugary drinks with water. So, okay, I can wrap my head around that one too. But I, those are the things that the science would tell us are, um, the, the biggest predictors of not just, um, our weights and our ability to maintain a, a healthy weight, but every single one is independently linked to, to chronic health as, uh, issues as well. Right. So if we're not getting enough sleep, it increases risk of, right heart disease by like twofold, right? It's, it increases risk of cancer. It increases risk of, um, the type two diabetes and prediabetes and obesity. So all of these things have impacts through hormone regulation or through immune function or gut health are also independently linked with disease. So when we focus on those as the healthy habits that we're going to work on as a family, we're setting the stage for, uh, naturally achieving a healthy weight, um, but also naturally achieving health. And I, I again, want to emphasize that uh, healthy and thin do not, those, those words do not mean the same thing. They can go together, but they don't always. And if you are going to choose one or the other, I highly recommend choosing healthy. And I think it's a great way to openly talk with your children about that stuff. I think one of the things that parents worry about is if they mention weight at all, it's taboo and um, then you create the shame. But I think just the opposite. I think the more we're open about, you know what, it doesn't matter what you look like. It matters how healthy you are and how you feel. And I've noticed that you've just been sitting around the house for a couple of days. So let's think about different things that we can do to get your energy up and to help you feel good. Like that is the conversation that I feel comfortable having with my children. Everybody is different. I'm not going to tell anybody how to talk with their children because their relationships are all different. But I think... I never want to have someone that I love feel like I don't love them back or all of them. And I think that's that's a way that I try to approach it as like, I love, for example, my husband and all of him, no matter what he looks like. And um, over the last couple of years, I've talked that we have both put on weight from depression and from me with my back injury and all of this kind of stuff. And we went away for the summer and I am no longer working. We worked really hard on our marriage this year and um, did a whole bunch of healthy habit things. We were physically active. We got out in the sun. We, you know, he, let's be real. He didn't really eat that many more vegetables. So don't, <laughs> I'm usually like force feeding him, but I would lead by example. Um, and Matt lost a ton of weight this summer and 
I don't say that to be like, look at his weight loss. I say it because that was never a thing that I needed to like chat with him about or, you know, it wasn't like a daily check in like, where are you now? Okay, great. High five, one pound down. Like, I remember looking at him about halfway through the summer and saying like, you seem like you're feeling so much better. What's going on? And he's like, yeah, you know, I'm really in a good groove right now. And those are the conversations that I think are helpful for people to feel acknowledged and to feel seen, to be recognized for work that they're being put put forward. But if you talk about how much better someone is or um, that sort of thing, for me personally, it just made me feel shame for what I looked like before. Does that make sense? I, did you ever feel that way, Sarah? Um, no, I did. I think um, I think one of the things that um, my, my journey has had a lot of ups and downs. And I think that, um, and, and not just my weight going up and down, I think that there's just like Matt's experience of getting into a really good emotional place for me tends to translate to, Oh, wait, I'm 10 pounds lighter than I was last month you know, like, or two months ago. Right. And it just, it tends to like fall into place. And I think that, um, I think that I, I still really, I have to be really mindful about that very like self-destructive self-talk that, um, that, that like, cause what gets me into that emotional place is that's really healthy is doing all of those important mental health things like getting enough sleep and being active and a nutrient dense diet and taking time for myself in my week. But then also it's just about that dialogue that I have with myself. And sometimes, um, I will slip into those habits of that, that dialogue becoming more destructive. And when I tend to notice it is when it, um, when it starts to turn outward as opposed to just being something that's just between me and myself and I. And so, um, I think that one of the things that I have to be like continuously mindful about is sort of letting go of, um, letting go of the judgment of myself, letting go of, um, the guilt and letting, letting that, um, letting that reflect outwards in terms of how I relate to the people around me and their health struggles. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think, I think it also helps you self-reflect when mm -hmm. you're focused on those positive ways of outward reflection, because then it's easy to say, you know what, I wouldn't talk to so-and-so this way, or I didn't, I reworded whatever and talk to so-and-so this way. Let me do the same for myself. Because I do think it's that self inward approach is the hardest thing because you want to be kind and loving towards others most of the time. <laughs> Every once in a while. <laughs> um, but it's not intuitive for us to do it to ourselves. I think we're most people are their own worst enemies, right? We see the worst in ourselves. Um, and so one of the things that 
um, I said recently that really has kind of stuck with me is like, what if I just only focused on the things that I really liked about myself? And what if I just, every time I think negatively about one part of myself or something I don't like, instead I made myself say two things that I really liked about myself. And it's actually something that we did with the kids on the road, like when they would start bickering with each other, because you're stuck in a minivan all summer long. Um, <laughs> and they're and they're just boys, like it would have happened at home as well. But if they would say something negative about anybody, like, you know, well, you know, you're annoying, they had to say two compliments to that person. And it worked really well. Um, they would say just like the most amazing, kind, thoughtful things. And I'm tearing up like saying that because it was so... Um, helpful for them. And I saw how much it improved, like immediately how they were interacting with one another. And so I started doing it with myself because I was like, you know what, like I deserve that as well. Oh, I am integrating that into my family starting uh, yesterday. That's amazing. <laughs> it works so, so well. And we all deserve that. Like we, you know what I mean? Like we all deserve to focus on the good things and to be complimented and to compliment others. And the more you do it to others, the more natural it will be for you to do it to yourself. I love that. And I hope that, I hope that, and I mean, I, I recognize that this was a bit of a ranty episode. Um, but this was a topic that, that both Stacy and I felt extremely strongly about, especially watching something get so much positive media attention when anybody who actually knows any of the science behind any of it, whether it's from the physiology side or the psychology side could tell you that it is, uh, terrible, but um, but I hope that that kind of ends on a positive note and we've given – I hope we've given all of our listeners some, um, some – just some things to think about and, and self-reflect. I want to reiterate that this, there's, there's no part of this conversation that is helped by blame or guilt or remorse and this is really about – moving forward and, um, and really embracing these health journeys as a family, um, focused on, right. It's not just focused on the healthy habits, but there is some amazing family bonding to come out of these experiences. hundred percent. Mic drop. I love you audience. And I know that you are feeling the feels with us, we would love for you to share it with your community or people that might benefit from listening to the show, leaving us reviews, however you're listening to the podcast, sharing it on social media, or even just commenting on our blog posts, help others find um, these shows in a way that can help heal themselves and potentially help their family. So preemptively, I thank you for your support and spreading the word on this. I would love for, I would love to hear honestly that one parent found our show and was thinking about putting their child into some sort of weight loss program and decided instead to go walking with them and bring them into the kitchen. I'm just hearing, I'm thinking about it because that is the most powerful thing. That's all I got because I'm choked <laughs> yeah. up, Sarah. Um, I'm, and you're bringing those emotions to my surface again because uh, I've been like trying to like suppress them to talk coherently this whole time. So on that note, 
Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to The Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. Yeah, we've already discussed that I have a tab problem. So not only do I have a tab problem, but I have like a multi-window, multi-tab problem. And I know what they all are. And so when the boys come along and like use my computer and either open a tab or change a tab, I'm like, no. No, these are completely organized. What are you doing? I know, I know where everything is. I know how far to the right I have to scroll. But also now I have so many like documents open that I have to scroll through my desktop. So, you know, like the the open thing that mm-hmm. I don't, oh, you use an Apple on a PC. There's like a I, quick I use both. switch. Yeah. There's the quick switch at the bottom. I now have a scroll for the quick switch at the bottom, mm. which I feel shows that I'm winning the winning <laughs> technology. Winning right at <laughs> winning at using computers. Uh, so the more that I researched for this, the more indignant I got. I am ready to rant. I've taken out sponsorship. Uh, <laughs> I just I... want to state for the record that it was you. <laughs> I'm so upset. I'm so, I'm so upset. <sighs> really, I'm really I, I feel uh, right now I've, I'm putting and Monsanto into the same category in terms of destroying the world. That is how upset I am. What show number this? Okay. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's right. I didn't double check it, but I'm pretty sure that's right. I just won't say it. It's fine. It's a cool number, though. I don't know. I don't know what's cool about that number. It's like a year plus two days. Mm. Dude. <laughs> Dude, that means we've done more episodes than if you listened to an episode every day for a year. I apologize. I just can't even. (laughs) Wow. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.